So our passage this morning is from John in chapter 4. It is uh, quite a lengthy one. But remember, strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord. There we go. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus had answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes... He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, 
I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised, but they were, to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you had not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Behind this passage looms an enormous historical and cultural subtext. It's it's gigantic. And if we don't kind of try and get our head around it, a a lot of the passage doesn't make sense. So first, a potted history. We read in 2 Kings 17 that when the Assyrians took Samaria captive, they deported large numbers of the inhabitants and they replaced them by people from all over their empire. We also read that the incomers brought their own forms of worship with them. Um, uh, Possibly for completeness, however, uh, maybe they were tidy-minded people, they added the worship of the God of Israel to the list. And in time, they dropped the worship of other gods and they adopted a version of worshipping the God of Israel exclusively. Thus we read in Ezra 4 that when the Jews returned from exile in Babylon, it was the Samaritans that offered to help them rebuild their temple and that the offer was turned down. So for hundreds of years prior to when this passage takes place, uh, there had been what you might call profound theological differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. For example, the Samaritans acknowledged as sacred scripture Genesis through to Deuteronomy, but not any other part of the Old Testament scriptures. The Samaritans understood the Messiah to be a prophet and a teacher, rather like Moses, whilst the Jews anticipated a ruler, a messianic king. 
And furthermore, the Samaritans refused to worship at Jerusalem, preferring their own temple, which they built on Mount Gerizim around 400 BC, and which the Jews burned down around 128 BC. Just a few years before the birth of Jesus, the Samaritans gained entry to the temple in Jerusalem on the eve of Passover, and in an act that was calculated to cause maximum offence, they scattered the bones of dead people around the temple, ritually defiling it, and they timed doing so so that it was impossible for the temple to be ritually uh, cleaned up uh, in time for the Jews to celebrate Passover. So the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews had progressed beyond theological differences. It was mutually sullen, resentful, bitter, and constantly teetering on the edge of violence. In recent history, the only thing I could think of that even comes vaguely close is the conflict in Northern Ireland, where there were two groups, uh, both of whom said they worshipped the same God and who had utter enmity towards each other, um, which, as we all know, led to significant violence. So it was that to call a fellow Jew a Samaritan, it was a tremendous insult. Uh, so obviously Jesus himself was called a Samaritan by the Jews in, in John 8 um, just to insult him devout Jews did not travel through Samaria they would generally add to their journey and travel around it uh, both to avoid the danger of defilement by encountering a Samaritan and uh, to be uh, clear also the danger of getting roughed up now in background to our passage, because of this, the Pharisees, who generally lurked malevolently in the background, hoping to catch Jesus out, were entirely absent when the exchange took place because they would not travel through Samaria. All of which gets us to the very succinct statement found in verse 9. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And secondly, some cultural context. At this time, commonly, amongst both Jews and Samaritans, men avoided eye contact with women in public. Men would not speak to a woman in public. Indeed, many Jewish men would not speak to their own wives in public. It is not recorded what they had to say about this when they got home. Now, women went to the well to get water for their households early in the day when it was coolest. They carried jars, which they filled from the well using folded wood and leather buckets with which they drew the water and then they emptied it into the jars. They went together um, as a group for a practical reason, which was basically to help get the heavy jars hoisted up on each other's heads when they were full and for the sake of propriety, lest they should come upon a man whilst undertaking this daily task and it was customary for men to stay away from the well in the cool of the morning but if unavoidably present at that time they would immediately withdraw to allow the woman 
to get water. And all of that context, and forgive me if it feels a bit like a history lesson so far, is in there to make us understand how very, very, very unusual the fact that this conversation took place at all is. And Jesus was a poor man. He got about on foot. We read in the beginning of John that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And here in John 4, we can see the humanity of Jesus. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. We have a saviour whose feet have hurt. Now each well had a capstone, a sort of donut-shaped collar made of stone to stop stuff being kicked into the well, uh, down into the shaft. And our passage opens with Jesus sitting down on the capstone of the well about noon. As we've already discussed, by the customs of the day, he shouldn't have been in that town. He certainly shouldn't have had anything to do with the Samaritan. He most certainly shouldn't have spoken to a woman. And he absolutely, definitely, certainly shouldn't have spoken to a woman of bad character. Now, she had five husbands. Some commentators wonder if she, she had a bum rap on four of them. Maybe she was a widow four times over. Uh, but whether or not that is true, she's certainly in trouble on man number five. Jesus was prepared to speak to this woman. And that he did so is an indication that nobody is excluded. No history, no nationality, no race, no culture, no politics, no gender, no enmity, no past, no riches, no lack, and no future expectations disqualify anyone from Jesus. The question then as now is not whether Jesus will engage with us, but our response to what he has to say. Now in verse 7, Jesus has a bucket moment. His disciples have gone to buy food and they have made a mistake because they've taken the folding leather bucket needed to draw water with them. So Jesus is sitting on the edge of the well and able to draw water. And that wasn't his mistake, and the omission wasn't his. The consequences of it are visited upon him. Now, I've got to be dead honest. I don't handle bucket moments well, as my wife will probably gladly testify. I managed to either be upset with those whose thoughtlessness has impacted upon me, or upset with those who tell me off when my thoughtlessness has impacted upon them. And this area, I'm, I'm, I confess to you all, I am a work in progress. But not Jesus. Tired and thirsty though he was, his concern was for her and not himself. Indeed, at no time in the passage is it indicated that he actually got a drink. She certainly did not draw one for him. So in verse 10, Jesus raised the concept of the gift of God. To her, the gift of God 
was Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And for the Jews, it was the law and the prophets. Essentially, the gift as she saw it, it was a book. In point of fact, a rule book. But Jesus indicates that he himself is the gift. And so it's indicated that the gift of God is not a book, but the person of Jesus. We read this in Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. A cistern is a well. And here we have Jesus sitting by a well, claiming to be the living water himself. Now, she's all for water. That means that she doesn't need to drink again. Well, why? Well, it would improve her comfort greatly. She would be freed from the drudgery of having to collect water every day. And uh, she has to do it in the heat of the sun. So it's worse for her than any of the other women. And she has to do this late in the day as part of a daily humiliation of being shunned by her own community. So she latches straight on to the concept of never thirsting again. Initially, her attention is fixed pretty much on, on the improvements that Jesus can deliver to her. And then Jesus says in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come back. And she responds with, I have no husband. If you have teenagers, or indeed are a teenager, or were once a teenager, uh, we will all know this tactic well. When caught out, go for withholding information until you have figured out how much they know. Yeah, laugh and empathise. Yeah. But this doesn't work with Jesus. Basically, because there are no secrets from him. She does not like the direction this is going so she tries a diversionary tactic. She becomes a theologian. I think when I say theologian, we'll have to go, ooh. She becomes a theologian. Ooh. I'm pleased you're still with me. She tries to steer away from that which is specific and personal to her into a wider and more general religious debate. She attempts to manoeuvre into the big philosophical questions, the ones that only require a point of view, but do not actually demand she has to change anything. And this doesn't work, because Jesus is right there, right in front of her. And he will look her in the eye with honesty. And he knows her profoundly. And he's interested in her. And he is choosing to speak to her. So to recap for a moment. Jesus has identified himself as the gift of God and the living water. And he's identified himself as the way to eternal life. And he's done this to someone outside his own faith. Indeed, to someone that the Jewish faith is actively hostile toward and to someone 
whose own community is actively hostile toward an outcast. You could say she was twice an outcast. Essentially, he declares both temples, Jewish and Samaritan, obsolete. The old ways and the old disputes are gone. And though she's clearly an immoral person and would be condemned under the law, Jesus does not condemn her. So the question hanging in the air boils down to this. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So at this point in her exchange with Jesus, she changes her tactics again. Her position becomes one of saying that you know, it's all too confusing, it's all much too big, it's beyond figuring out, and consequently we're all just going to have to hang on until the Messiah arrives and puts us all straight. Um, until, basically, she's saying, look, I can't handle this, let's park the whole thing. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She knows very well that when Moses was confronted by the burning bush, the chosen name taken by God was I am. She therefore understands that stunningly, this man is telling her he is not just the Messiah, but that he's God himself. And with that hanging in the air, Huge anticlimax, the disciples come back. <laughs> we read in the passage that they were surprised. I, I bet they were. <laughs> they find Jesus standing in a, a debris field of religious and cultural norms. You know, there are broken bits of everything that they understood to be correct and held dear all around him. And he knowingly smashed them in order to reach out to this unsuitable woman while the disciples came back carrying their cultural baggage still. Actually must have been very shocking. Now, I might be a bit unfair to them, but it seems to me that finding they were unable to ask Jesus what he was doing without expressing disapproval, they froze. <laughs> Caught between curiosity and condemnation, they ceased full forward motion. Meanwhile, the woman withdraws, and you'll note in her hurry, she leaves her jar behind. This is an expensive item, and not one that she could easily replace. But she had more important things on her mind than the things that she owned. So here the, the screen splits, if you like. Uh, between what she's busy off doing and the continuing dialogue with the disciples. Um, the dialogue with the woman at the well was about water. Well, the dialogue with the disciples, it's about food. And um, having nothing else to say, they urge him to eat. You know, they, uh, sometimes you arrive at a situation, you have no idea what to do, 
uh, you fall back on what it was you were sent to do and they've been sent to buy food so here you are Lord have, you know, have something to eat uh, it won't have been a ham sandwich <clears throat> now as, as some of you know uh, I drive an elderly car uh, it is nearly 28 years old ah. uh, and is very reliable but as you can imagine, uh, faults do arise from time to time. Um, owning a car of that age is a bit like uh, having your own Blackpool Tower in the sense that you, you paint, start at the bottom, get to the top, and then you have to start at the bottom again. It's a, a constant thing. And there was an issue with the vibration when, uh, when I accelerated or when power was applied. So I took it to the guys in D-side who look after it for me, and they put it up on the ramp, and they invited me to come down and have a look at the problem. Now, I had a look, and it looked like the bottom of a car. Okay. I, you know, I lack the necessary perspective. I can spot holes, but that's about the sum total of my... So, to understand the issue, I needed them to explain to me what it was I was looking at. And in the same way... In the passage, verse 34 to 39, Jesus is essentially telling his disciples what they are looking at. They were thinking about the satisfaction derived from dinner, from lunch. He was pointing to the satisfaction derived from being in the will of God and being about God's business. They were thinking about what was already on the table he was thinking about the whole harvest. Now, we read this in Amos chapter 9 and from verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Uh, I hope for the sake of Nigel that it's red. Amos is foretelling of a time when actions that had to be undertaken in series, one at a time, ploughing, then sowing, then reaping, then making wine, would somehow be undertaken in parallel. It'll all be going on, all together, joyously jumbled up. Things that had to be done one at a time could now be done all at once. And here Jesus is telling his disciples that when it comes to building the kingdom, we don't from habit have to apply sequential logic and wait for the harvest, nor do we ever have to stop harvesting. It doesn't matter what part we play in getting in the eternal harvest, as long as we play our part. There is no more honour between sowers and reapers. Sometimes we will sow and others will reap, and sometimes we will reap what others have sown, but we rejoice together. Now Jesus, through his encounter with the woman at the well, well, he has sown. And whilst he's talking to his disciples, simultaneously, this woman who went to draw water that could refresh for a couple of hours... She'd returned to her community without it. And instead, she'd taken news of living water that can refresh forever. Could this be the Messiah 
is the hugely profound question she poses. And the importance of it demands of the hearers that they have just got to check it out for themselves. Interestingly, her call isn't listen to me. It's very much go see him. And their response, well, it was an active one. They didn't sit there and go, well, if he comes this way, I'll have a word with him. If he should happen to pass by, I'll, I'll have a few questions for him. They went to see him. And so the outcome of a conversation with this deeply unsuitable person was this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. As one commentator put it, uh, I, I have to tell you it's a commentator because it's much too good for me. At the beginning of the conversation, Jesus did not make himself known to her. First she saw a thirsty man. Then she saw a Jew. Uh, then a rabbi or a teacher. Then a prophet. And last of all, the Messiah. She actually tried to get the better of a thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jews. She heckled the rabbi. She was pretty much swept off her feet by the prophet. And she adored the Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know this Jesus, then like the Samaritans, you should look into this yourself. It is the only honest response. He knows you profoundly, yet does not exclude you. The only person who can exclude any of us from knowing Jesus is us. The only person who can exclude you is you. He is the gift of God to you if you'll accept him. He's the way to eternal life if you'll accept him. And to meet with Jesus is to meet with God. And I do feel that just like with a Samaritan woman, that Jesus is here. He's here right now. And he will look you in the eye. He will not exclude you. And he knows you profoundly. And he's interested in you. And he's speaking to you. So, I'm going to close in prayer. 
And whilst we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, as I close in prayer, I am going to invite those who want to meet with Jesus for the first time to raise a hand. And I'm going to invite those who have met Jesus and want to meet him again because you have become strangers to raise your hand while we pray. I'd like you to to make yourself known in this way because we'd very much like to introduce you to Jesus and we'd like to speak to you privately. So, shall we pray? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, I thank you for the bottom of my heart for sending your son for me and in the person of Jesus giving me the free gift of eternal life. It astounds me that you care so much for me and yet you do. It astounds me that you will go to such extreme lengths to open dialogue with me and yet you do. It astounds me that you will look me in the eye and know me profoundly and yet do not exclude me. And I want to know you, extraordinary Jesus. Amen.